Genesis 4. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought a fat portion from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mehushael, and Mehushael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Adah and the other Zelah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and flute. Zelah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Namah. Lamach said to his wives, Adah and Zelah, listen to me. Wives of Lamach, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamach seven, 77 times. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Thank you, Hetty. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. There are many endearing, adorable characteristics that I love about my wife. Uh, I like to say she could have been a Jewish rabbi because she's the queen of hyperbole. When she goes to the grocery store and she comes back, she doesn't say that it was really crowded. She says that there were 753 people in front of her. 
When she gets mad at somebody, she doesn't say, I'm angry at somebody. She says she wants to pop them in the eye. I love her hyperbole. It's one of her endearing characteristics. She has other endearing characteristics. I love how she sings along with the radio when we're driving somewhere, particularly the country station. And, and she's got this little head bob that I love. And, and every once in a while, like in the chorus, if it's really intense, she'll take the hand off the wheel for a second and do this little, little double, uh, double hand fist thing. <laughs> I love it. But one of, one of my favorites is that when she is uh, in the kitchen uh, chopping vegetables or thumbing through her uh, cookbook, something like that, she will, and I'm not even going to try to demonstrate how she does this, she, she stands on one foot with the other foot up at an angle. She looks like a flamingo. And I remember, <laughs> I remember thinking, that is really strange. I don't know. Um, I wonder, you know, why does she do that? And then, and then one weekend, her mother came up to visit. And I, I come into the kitchen, and there in the kitchen are two flamingos. Because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. My, both of my kids, um, they, they, they walk around the house singing, um, and singing about whatever, singing about what they're doing, singing about their dump truck, singing about their brown bear. Uh, my, my wife says that living in the Hanley house is like, like living in a musical or an opera. I wonder where they got that from. You see, the apple doesn't fall, doesn't fall far from the tree. If you... Uh, are laying in bed sometime, and you hear out the window, you hear the sound of a Harley Davidson driving by, um, you, you, you might think to yourself, well, I wonder if that's Lenny Pikett, Steve Pikett, or Josh Pikett. Because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Today we're continuing in our series called The Story. And we are looking at the Bible as a whole. And what we're trying to see, the central thesis of this whole series, is that if you want to understand any passage in the Bible, you've got to understand how it fits into the overarching narrative of Scripture. That if you, if you don't see how it fits in, it almost doesn't really matter how well you know the stories. You might know all of the stories of the Bible. You might know chapter and verse. You might know where to find them. You might even know kind of what they're about. But if you don't know how they fit into the story you're going to miss out on what, what's really going on. And so what we've been doing is we, we're looking at this overarching narrative of Scripture, and what we're seeing is that there are essentially four acts to this story. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. In the first few weeks, we looked at creation, and what we saw is that God created everything, and He created it good. And he, he made order out of non-order. Uh, he, he made order out of, of non-order, and he made it good. But one of the things that we saw is that even then he didn't make it perfect. Uh, there was still room for improvement. There was still non-order. There was still beauty that could, could still be created. Beauty, as we saw, is a, a form of order. It's a higher form of order. And so he created the world with beauty, but he also created it so that there was potential for there to be greater order and greater beauty. And then he created humanity in his image with the purpose of cultivating the garden, cultivating the land, and bringing about a greater degree of order and beauty, participating with God in this process of bringing beauty and order into creation. And what we discover as we come to this passage here is we see that playing out. 
We see that playing out. We see this here in verses 19 through 22. Lamech married two women. Uh, We'll come back to that in a minute here. One named Adah and the other Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, for he was the father of all who play the harp and the flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain. He forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Now, we, we need to stop here for a minute, and we need to go back to something that I said last week. And that is that when we read the Bible, we need to realize that it is making historical claims. That it's, 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 it's making claims about what happened, that these are historical events that took place, that, that Adam and Eve were historical people. Uh, it's not just a, a story uh, that communicates timeless wisdom about humanity. Uh, of, of course, what you might say is that it became timeless because Adam made it timeless. It became timeless because Adam made it timeless, but it is rooted in something historical here, right? But then what we also saw, and this is important, is that to say that it's historical does not mean that every detail is literal. Just because you take it historically doesn't mean that you take every detail literally. And and honestly, to, to, to speak very big picture here, you might even boil down the basic split between conservative and liberal Christianity in America to this one issue is that that the conservatives take everything historically and literally and liberals take everything figuratively, metaphorically and ahistorically. And you could just say that kind of splits it. And the problem is they're both thinking the same way that it's got to be one or the other. But what we need to understand, that's not how the biblical writers thought. What's going on here, no doubt, is that historical claims are being made, but that doesn't mean that every detail is to be taken literally. And I'll give you sort of an obvious example here, and that is that when when it says here, um, where is this, Jubal, this guy Jubal, he was the father of all who play the harp and the flute. Now, do we, are we really to, to, to think that that is saying that everybody who plays the harp and the flute is a genetic descendant of Jubal? Are we really to think that, that, that if you live in a tent, you are genetically descended from Jabel? No, it, it's, it's, it's not saying that. It's, it's a way of saying, it's a way of saying that they had a historical influence on society in a powerful way. It's, it's a little bit like, let, let, me put it, let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. Uh, in, in modern culture, we'll say something like this. We'll say that William Carey was the father of the modern missionary movement. William Carey is the father of the modern missionary movement. Now, when we say that, we don't mean that every modern missionary is a genetic descendant of William Carey. What we mean is that William Carey had a historical influence on the way modern mission work is carried out and therefore on every missionary. When we talk about our founding fathers, the founding fathers of America, we talk about George Washington and, and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, right? and we say they are our founding fathers. We are not saying that every American can be, uh, can be traced genetically to, to John Adams or, or, or a, you know, Abraham Lincoln or, or well, we got to go back farther than that, right? George Washington, right? We're not saying that. What we are saying is that they had a historical and real influence on Americans and the way that they live their lives. 
So just because it means we don't necessarily take every detail literally, but that doesn't mean that it's not historical. These are historical people who had an historical influence on culture and society. And that's really what this is about. This is about the fact that humanity has begun uh, to live out this cultural mandate and has begun to bring beauty and order to, to all of creation. And, of course, another thing that's, that's quite important about this, and as Westerners, we would completely miss this, we completely take this for granted, is that what this is, is communicating quite powerfully, particularly to the peoples who would have originally read this, is it's saying that if you look at the origin of these kinds of, of things, music and, and, and metallurgy and all of this sort of thing, you find that the, the origin is, is in human beings, not in other gods. You see, in, in that time period, in that, that culture, generally speaking, when you would talk about the origin of these different crafts and whatnot, there was some god that was associated with it. So let me give you an example here. Um, Let's see, we find that the Ugaritic-speaking people of ancient Syria, the origin of metallurgy is traced not to a human like Tubal-Cain in this account, but to the god Koshar. The Cypriot god Sinras invented the musical instrument, the lyre, uh, the, the lyre and uh, the Greek god Pan invented the flute. So you see, in that, that culture, they were saying all these different gods created all of these different crafts and, and, and whatnot, and... Uh, And this is powerfully saying, no, 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 there is one God. There is one God who created all things and has called us as humanity, has given us the opportunity to work with God in bringing about greater beauty in order to all creation. I cannot underscore how important what you do Monday to Friday is. To be a Christian doesn't mean we're just sitting around waiting for Jesus to come take us away. We're not just waiting for, for Jesus to come make everything right. That, that We are called to be agents of renewal in this world. We are called in everything that we do to seek to bring beauty and order to all of creation. And so we, we see that taking place here. We see the cultural mandate beginning to be lived out and, and greater beauty and greater order being brought into this world. But but, but we, we also see, right, that, that, well, that's not the whole story. We see this here, as we saw last week, that's not the whole story, that, that humanity begins to cultivate, use their gifts and their abilities to bring beauty and order, but we also begin to use it for not so good reasons. We begin to, begin to use our abilities uh, to, for ourselves. We see this actually emerging in this passage. For ourselves, it's, it's about us, you see. It's about taking care of me. It's not about taking care of God's creation and seeking to bring beauty in order for the sake of beauty and order in God's creation. It's about me. It's about taking care of myself. And so, so we, we begin to see that creation is good, but it has turned. It's fallen. And, of course, where did this all start? Where did this begin? And it begins with Adam. We saw last week Adam turns away from God. We see that Adam had the opportunity, we given all of these opportunities to walk with the Lord, to participate with him in bringing beauty and order to all creation. And what does Adam do? Adam doubts. We saw that at the root of Adam's sin, the root of all sin, is doubt. He doubts that, that God... God is really going to care for him. Satan trips him into thinking, no, 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 no. No, God is holding you back. 
God's holding you back. You can't trust God. You need to take matters into your own hands. You can't trust God, so doubt. Doubt underscores the very heart of Adam's sin. And we see the same thing here with Cain. We see that with Cain, what, what is Cain's sin? Ultimately, it comes down to a lack of faith. Now, why, why do I know this? You're like, Kevin, how did you figure that out? Are you, are you brilliant? No, I'm not brilliant. This is actually really easy. This is one of these situations where Scripture interprets Scripture for us. The reason I know this is because the writer of Hebrews says this. Let me read you in the book of Hebrews, writing, the writer writes about this. It says, uh, by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. You see, at the heart of the difference between Cain and Abel was faith. Now, okay, all right, how, why does he know this? Well, okay, so he was divinely inspired, fine. But, but we can still get this by unpacking what's happening here. What happens here? Abel comes before God and offers a fat portion. A fat portion of his offering. In other words, he brings God his very best. He gives him the best of the fruit of his labor. And it seems that the Cain just gives some. Yeah, just, you know, give, gives him some. Now, why? Why does Abel give God the best of himself and Cain just gives some? And here's why. Because Abel trusts God. Abel knows that everything that he has is given to him by God anyways. Cain thinks, wait a minute, I can't give him my best. Because then what about me? No, no, I've I got to keep my best for myself. Because I can't trust God. I've got to take matters into my own hands. You see, th- th- this isn't about Abel earning God's favor over Cain. No, no. You don't earn God's favor. It's about faith. It's about simply trusting God. At the end of the service today, we're going to take an offering. And I hope you give big. I hope you give a fat portion of the fruit of your labor. I really do. But you know what? I hope that you give not because the church needs it. Because honestly, if this church is really doing the work of God, we don't need anybody's money. Because God doesn't need our money. God's going to get done what he wants to get done, whether he does it through this church or not. God does not need our offerings. God does not need your money or my money any more than God needs Cain or Abel to feed him. Right, you see, the offerings in the ancient world, there's another major difference between the biblical worldview and, and the ancient worldview, is that in most religions in, the, in that area, it was, un, it was understood that basically what humans could offer the gods is that they could feed them. Weird, I don't know why. Apparently the gods could do everything but prepare their own meals. So the people had to cook for them, so they would make you know, meals for them. And, and God's like, the God of the Bible, wait a minute, let me, let me read to you one of my favorite verses. This is its song. This is in Psalm 50. God says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. I do not eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats. You're not giving this because I need it. 
You see, when we give, this, this is, I think, very counterintuitive to what we must think about. What, what is giving all? Well, the church needs money to do ministry. Okay, that's, that's true at, at a practical level, but honestly, you've got to be thinking much bigger than this. We don't give because God needs our money. We give because it's an opportunity for us to show that we trust God. So I, I pray that you give big. I pray you give a fat portion, but not because we need it, but because you're exercising the fact that you trust God. You know that everything that you have comes from Him. There's no need to hold on. No need to be stingy. God will provide for whatever you need. But Cain doubts. Cain doubts. Lack of faith at the root of his sin. Same thing as Adam. So we, we could take the story of Cain and Abel and we could see that it communicates a timeless truth about the nature of sin. Similarly to Adam, it communicates the timeless truth about the nature of sin. The sin is rooted in doubt. But if we take the story of Cain and set it within the overarching narrative, the overarching flow of the story of the Bible, what we also discover is that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Because Cain is Adam's son. And of course, if we look at this passage, what we discover is that it's not just not just lack of faith, though that's the root of the whole thing. That's, that's not the only similarity between Cain and Abel's sin. In fact, honestly, as, as Hetty was reading this, you, you might have been thinking to yourself, wait a minute, didn't we read this last week? I, I, thought, I thought we heard this story last week. And, you, and Well, no, we read a different story last week. We read the story of Adam, but you're right, because it's basically the same story. In fact, the flow, the structure of it is very similar. Let me just highlight some of the similarities between Adam's sin and, and, and Cain's sin, we see that both Cain and Adam try to hide their sin from God, right? So, so Adam goes and hides in the garden. Uh, Cain actually takes Abel out into the field to kill him, you know, hoping he can kind of hide, hide it there, right? And, and then when God comes and questions both Adam and, and Cain, what do they, they do? They try to trick God. They try to fool him, try to pull the wool over his eyes, you, what does Adam do? Adam blames, right? Oh, it was, it was the woman's fault. You know, it wasn't me. It wasn't my fault. It was the woman's fault, right? And what, what does Cain does? Well, Cain just denies the whole thing. It's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't even know what you're talking about. And, and, and then, and then, and then what, what happens? Well, they, they, God comes and, and says, okay, let's cut to the chase here. God cuts to the chase in both situations, right? He says to, says to Adam, okay, 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 whatever. So Eve, yeah, okay, so Eve got you to do this, but did you eat it? And God comes to Cain and says, oh, you have no idea, you don't, you don't know where your brother is? His blood is crying out to me from the ground. And then they both are banished. It's the same story. Because the apple doesn't fall far from the isn't it true? Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. That, that, that even our, 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 our traits, our characteristics, and our passions are passed on from one generation to the next. I mean, isn't this true? I mean, well, our, our traits are passed on. High blood pressure, uh, you know, uh, you know a propensity uh, for, for various kinds of diseases. I mean, the color of your eyes. 
uh, the color of your hair, uh, the way you walk, the way you stand in the kitchen. I mean, I mean, all of this stuff gets passed on from generation to generation. The, the, the traits get passed on. Your passions get passed on. I mean, my, in, in, my, in my family, it's not always the same, right? It doesn't always look exactly the same. There are variations on this. So, for example, uh, my father loves to play the violin. I love to play the guitar. My mom likes to write textbooks. I like to write sermons, right? So there's variations, but it's really the same thing, just sort of getting passed on. And and actually, uh, in addition to that sort of, when it gets passed on from generation to generation, oftentimes the intensity of it increases, right? So uh, I'll give you an example. In my own family, when my father moved to Wyoming in the early 70s, he started river rafting. He was the first one in the Hanley family, the original rafter in the, uh, in the Hanley family. And he started, he got our whole family rafting. And I remember when we were kids, there, the rapids, if you've ever gone rafting, the rapids, there are different numbers for the intensity of the rapid. And the higher the number, the more dangerous it is. And I remember when I was a kid and we would go rafting, you know, the adrenaline would start rushing when we would go through a class two rapid. And we would pray before we went through a class three rapid. My brother, he, he now lives out in, in out west. He came out here for a while, and he's like, I can't take this. i got to get back to where there's some real rivers. And so he goes back out west, and, and now for him, he doesn't get an adrenaline rush until it's at least a level four, and he doesn't pray until level five. And his son, Micah, is 12 years old. Micah's already a better rafter than I ever was, and I think when Micah's an adult to get any sort of adrenaline rush, he's going to have to go over Niagara Falls. See, not only is it passed on, but, it, but there's an in- intensity to it. But that, that apple falls far from the tree. But unfortunately, it's not just our traits and our characteristics that get passed on. Is it? It's also our sin and our brokenness. Yes, the color of our eyes, the ability to curl your tongue, the shape of your chin, all gets passed on. But so does insecurity, pride, materialism, fear and anxiety, cattiness critical spirit, propensity to lie, laziness. I mean, we, we could go on and on and on and on. It gets passed on from one generation to the next. I, I'm well aware that in my family, the inability to use a hammer is passed on from generation to generation. But you know what I'm also aware of is so is a quick I'm well aware that, that, that my sin will be passed on from generation to generation. I'll just give you kind of one little example. <clears throat> kind of a trivial example. One of the things about having kids is that you can't hide your sin anymore. Because if you hide it, they're not going to hide it. So let me give you an example. I'll, I, I'll, just, conf- I'll just come out and confess. I'll confess. Uh, because you're going to find out anyway. 
my wife and I, we like potty humor. We do. We love potty humor. And, and so, you know, there's going to come a point where you're going you're gonna to end up uh, talking with my daughter, and, and she's going to say something like, where did, you, where did you learn? Oh, daddy, daddy said that, right? And, and honestly, I've, I've, I've tried to curb it. You know, look, we could get into a debate about whether or not potty humor really qualifies as what Paul was talking about in Ephesians when he talked about unwholesome talk or whether or not it's really just a holdover from Victorian civility and all that. I mean, we get into a debate about that. I mean, this is certainly a gnat that I am trying to strain out. I'm trying to strain it out, right? I, I, I'm trying to strain it out because I realize that it does offend some people, but I'm also aware that there are camels that I do not want to pass on to my kids to swallow, but sin is passed on from generation to generation. In the book of Exodus, when it gives the Ten Commandments, it's interesting when it talks about idolatry and it says do not worship idols. It says right after that, it's interesting, it says that God will punish Punish the sins of our fathers for, to the third and fourth generation. And most scholars agree that it's, it's not really so much talking about God punishing innocent generations as much as it is that the consequences of our sin will have its effect for generation and generation and generation. That that sin gets passed on, that we suffer from the consequences. And one of the ways in which we suffer from the consequences is that the sinful tendencies also get passed on. And I think that they get passed on in two ways. One is that it gets passed on where we, we simply learn the same thing. Right? We, we learn the same, the same behavior, right? So, so if, I, you know, if, I'm, if I'm talking about potty humor, then my, my daughter, she's going to start, you know, she's going to start saying it too. She's just going just gonna to learn the same thing. If, if I lose my temper regularly, then, then she's going to become used to that, and then she's going she's gonna to lose her temper. That you, you, you learn it from what they, from what they did. You know, it, it, it's interesting. I've gotten in conversations with people who will they'll talk to me, and they will be very critical of how critical their parents were of them. Critical of how critical your parents were. Hmm. And sometimes we, we, we learn it. Other times sin gets passed on where, where the sins of our, of our, our parents or, or grandparents or whatever, sometimes it skips a generation, you know, whatever. Sometimes the, the way in which they sin then affects us in a way that leads us to sin in other ways, right? You know, so, so, for example, their statistics show that those who were abused or have neglect are nine times more likely to be involved in criminal activity of all kinds. Oftentimes, it's the same kind of criminal activity. Oftentimes, it isn't. Sometimes, we react with a different kind of sin. Maybe you grew up and, and you were criticized and there was neglect or something like that. And so, you just suffer from massive insecurity. Right? So, so there's, there's, it may not look exactly the same. It might be a reaction against what took place. Sins of our fathers are passed on from generation to generation. You know, <clears throat> those of you who have been in our community groups, especially at the beginning, we started the community groups going through a discipleship curriculum called Gospel Transformation. And it's a 30-lesson it's a uh, curriculum broken into three books. It's about 30 lessons, about 10 in each book. And I've gotten comments from people who 
went through this whole process. And what's interesting is without a doubt, without a doubt, the particular lesson that got the most comments, and, and sometimes people were critical of it, sometimes people really liked it, but what was clear is that it was one of the most challenging lessons in the whole curriculum was a lesson that asks you to talk about your relationship with your father. And that was really hard for some people. Some people understandably just couldn't do it. One good comment was, why is that in the first book only three weeks in? Like, you want me to talk about that? I've just met these people? Good point. But that's hard, isn't it? It's hard to talk about our relationships with our parents because is it not true that very few, because here's why, because when you talk about your relationship with your parents, you're really uncovering who you are because there are very few things that have shaped you more into who you are than your parents and your upbringing. Is that not true? And so to talk about that, to bring that up is to really talk about yourself. That's why it's so hard. That's why it's so personal. But here's what I want to tell you. It's simply this, is that I believe that You can be a Christian for 40, 50, 60 years, and until you are able to talk about your relationship with your parents, you will see very little transformation in your life. I mean, you can go to Bible studies your whole life. I mean, you can can know where everything is, and you you can quote chapter and verse. Right? But but until you're able to unpack your relationship with your parents, your father, your mother, when you're able to unpack that very stuff, honestly, I think you're, you're just kidding yourself. That your ability to, to, to experience transformation is always going to be skin deep no matter how many Bible studies you've ever taken. Right, I mean, I mean this, is, this is why when you go to counseling, what do they do? Eventually, I mean, you're talking with them. They, they, they get it. They will get into this. They start talking to you about your upbringing, trying to get to the root of these issues. I mean, let's, let's, you know, let's think about it here for a little bit. A little more midrashic speculation here. Let's imagine here that Cain, Cain goes to counseling, right? Cain goes to counseling, and he goes and, you know, laying on the couch. Cain laying on the couch, eating his fat portion. And there he is, right? And he's, he's laying there on the couch, and, uh, and he's talking with the counselor, and, and, and you know, he's, he finally gets it out. Okay, I killed my brother. Right, and, and they're like, okay, well, let's talk about this. Let's figure out, you know, what, uh, what, was, that, what was going on. And they start to talk about jealousy. Je- he was jealous of his brother, and, and he was also really frustrated because, you know, he worked really hard, but the ground wasn't producing very much. I mean, work was just really frustrating. It was just kind of bitter in general. So he just starts talking about all these issues and all these reasons, and this is all good. This is really helpful, but it's really not going to get anywhere until the counsel- counselor asks this one simple question. So, Cain, tell me about your father. Now here we gotta cut we gotta cut the guy some slack. Uh, uh, my father, um, he's responsible for the fall of the human race. I mean, come on, you know, cut Cain a little bit of slack here. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Sin is passed on from one generation to the. Next, and what we see here actually is that unless there's an intervention, unless there's an intervention into this, it's probably just going to get worse. 
Isn't it true? I mean, this is what we see here, that, that the sin doesn't just get passed on. It gets worse. And then let's talk about Cain. We'll start with Cain here. Uh, what happens, the difference between Cain and Adam? Well, um, okay, so when, when God comes to Adam and says, where are you? And, and you know, what's going, what does he do? Now, notice this. Adam doesn't deny that he ate from the tree. He just blames his wife. Cain, he goes even deeper. He just denies it. I don't know what you're talking about. See, starting to increase just a little bit. Of course, the, the most obvious example in this passage of how sin increases is the difference between Cain and his son Lamech. Now, here's where we really see it beginning to pick up steam. We see that Cain commits murder and Lamech commits murder and adultery. Right here, this is where we get to uh, Lamech married two women. Now, here, another little aside here. This is why it's so important for us to read every passage within the overarching narrative of Scripture. Because if you don't, if you just kind of pick up the Bible casually and you just kind of read random stories, and so you read about Lamech and then in his, his two wives, and then you read about David and his slew of wives, and you read about Solomon and his thousands of wives, and you start thinking, wait, I guess the Bible just is increasingly endorsing this idea of polygamy. But when you set it within this overarching narrative, what you discover is that far from endorsing polygamy, this escalation in polygamy is yet another example of the spiraling decadence of the sin that is passed on from one generation to another. So Lamech's sin gets deeper. And then, of course, in terms of his murders, right, Cain at least you know, tries to hide the fact. Lamech doesn't just not hide it. He he boasts about it. Unless there's an intervention, unless something comes, it's it's probably just going to get worse. So, once again, the question is, what do we do? And does this passage just leave us there? Does it just leave us without hope? Well, once again, this isn't the whole story. And again, as we saw last week, there are seeds of hope. And I want to highlight for you in this four seeds of hope that are already present in this passage. First of all, what we discover is the mark of Cain. The mark of Cain is yet another example of God's grace upon those who sin against him. What happens here? So Cain murders his brother, and then Cain understands how justice works. Right? Justice is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. For every action, for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. I mean, this is embedded in the laws of physics, folks. This is, this is how it works. This is justice, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So he knows justice means somebody's going to come kill him in revenge, and that's, that's okay, and that's fine, right? And they, they should do that, and God says no. I'm going to put a mark on you. I'm going to put protection upon you. I'm going to show you grace. In fact, even him being banished is a a way of saying, well, you better get out of here. (laughs) You're going to get in trouble, right? So we see him showing grace even even in in this mark on Cain. He's protecting him. What what God should do is judge him. What God, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, but he puts this mark on him. First seed of grace. Second seed of grace, is we see that God gives Cain the opportunity to repent. You see, again, when, when, when God comes to Cain, 
and says, hey, where's your brother? Right? The literalists get all confused. Oh, my gosh, does this mean that God doesn't know everything? Why, what this is? No. It's a, it's, it's, it's a way of saying, hey, I'm giving you a chance to confess this case. If you'll just confess this, it might be very different. But why, why doesn't Cain confess? And here's why Cain doesn't confess. Cain doesn't confess because he, like so many of us, think that our worth and our value is based on what we do. And so we have to hide our sin. We can't let it out because, well, if we let it out, then God's going to see how terrible I really am. If I let this out, right, then my reputation is going to be tarnished. But the very heart of the Christian faith, the very heart of the biblical God, as we see from the very beginning, is that your worth and your value is not based on what you do. It's based on faith. It's based on trusting in God that your awesomeness, your righteousness can never come from you. You'll never be awesome enough. But your righteousness and your awesomeness only comes from God. And so if you, you want to be awesome, you want to be righteous, well, you, you humble yourself before God. You can be totally open and honest because your worth and your value is not based on what you do, whether good or bad. It's based on the grace of God. And see, what we see when, we're not, when we're not willing to confess our sin, when we want to hide it, it's because we don't, we don't get this. And we're still trying to establish our own worth and our own value. But God is giving Cain an opportunity to repent if he will just humble himself. Well, we, we, we see this, this idea that humility leads to salvation actually emerges in another seed of hope that emerges here. And that's when we look at Seth. Notice here how it ends with Seth. Adam lay with his wife again and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. So then let's just talk about Seth. Now, what we need to understand here is that a lot of scholars actually would, would suggest um, that, that really everything from Genesis 1 through 11 is really just prologue. It's just preamble setting up the story of Abraham. That that's really, especially to the people for whom this was originally written, that's what, where, for them, things really started. So it's really all about setting the stage for Abraham and, and, and setting the stage, understanding the line between Adam and Abraham. And so when it starts talking about Cain and Abel, what, what it's really, it's just trying to explain them so that it can get on with the real story. And the reason why is it's got to explain is it's got to explain this. Why does the line not go through the firstborn? Because you see, in that culture, there is this custom known as promogenitor. Basically, what it was is that the firstborn was seen as superior. The firstborn was the one who received the, the greatest blessing, often would receive a double portion of the inheritance. So, you know, if God's going to use some line to, you know, bring renewal into humanity, it's got to go through the firstborn, right? And what we discover is already here, already in the beginning, we begin to see this principle which emerges throughout the story that unfolds is that God does not always use the firstborn. He often uses the younger, and it's a way of showing what Jesus will then go on to articulate very clearly, and that is that the first will be last Your worth, your value, your righteousness isn't being the firstborn or being rich or smart. 
talented. Your worth and your value doesn't come in what society says makes you righteousness, whether it's that you're firstborn in that culture or you're wealthy and smart or whatever in this culture. He's saying, no. What makes you awesome and righteous is God's grace. And then the fourth seed of hope is, of course, what this whole line is about in the first place. The line from Adam through Seth to Abraham through Isaac through Jacob to David. And this is the line, we'll find out when we come to Abraham, this is the line God has called them as his chosen people to undo what Adam has done, to bring renewal and restoration to the fallenness of humanity. So he calls out a people, and what we see is we, we see glimmers of them doing this. Like Oftentimes, it, the, the people of Israel really are doing precisely what they're supposed to be doing, and they're holding out against the, the spiraling decadence of humanity all around them, and, and they're holding out, and they, they're shining like a light, and they're, and they're an example. But as it moves forward, eventually, as you read through First and Second Kings, and you, you, you come, you discover that the line of David, even though it holds out here and there are examples, in the end, the line really just goes the same way as the line of deeper and deeper and just deeper. Until a little baby born in Bethlehem. Son of David, line of David. I like to say that every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every Sunday is Christmas Sunday. Not that Christmas is always on Sunday. Every Sunday we celebrate the coming of God into this world. That still, through the line, still fulfilling the promise, God said he would, he would bring renewal through this line. That was his promise. And so the, it comes through the line. Jesus in the line of David. And yet at the same time, God knows this is only going to happen if he comes. And so we find that Jesus is, on one hand, the line of David, and yet on the other hand, he is God himself. And Jesus comes to undo the sin of Adam and to undo, to do precisely what the line of Abraham was never able to do, to break out of this cycle. In conclusion, turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, I... Page 1,117 of your few Bibles. And here, the Apostle Paul is talking about himself. He's talking about his own experience. He's talking about his own struggle with, with sin and brokenness. Uh, but he's using language that suggests that he's also implying that this is everyone's story. This isn't just his. This is everyone's story. We're here in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. 
Now, he's talking about his own experience, but doesn't this sound familiar? These are are echoes that point clearly to the story of of Adam. He's saying, this is my story, but this is everyone's story. And then in flipping over, beginning in verse 21, so I find this law at work. (laughs) When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? He's acknowledging that that, that sin has been passed on from generation to generation, and he knows it. He's aware of it. He wants to get out of it, but he realizes that he can't. He can't get out of it. He can't make this happen. He can't undo this. He realizes that the only way it's ever going to be broken is if there was an intervention. The only way this is going to happen is if God himself comes in and breaks this. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Then he goes on in Romans 8 and he, he talks about how the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us. When we press into Jesus, the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is available to work in us and to break us out of this cycle. Maybe you are here today and you find yourself consumed with fear and anxiety. I mean, you, you, worry, you worry about your financial situation. You worry about your children. You worry about how much you're worrying. And of course, you know, you're like, well, look, you know why I, you know why I worry? It runs in the family. Right? That's, just, that's just part of the way. That's just our way. There's just anxiety. Or maybe, maybe, maybe anxiety didn't run in the family, but, but maybe something else did. Something else did that affected you and has led you to, has led you to work. The heart of the gospel is that when we rest in Jesus, we can look at that sin and brokenness and say, it stops here. Maybe you're here and you struggle with insecurity or pride, and, and, and maybe that runs in your family. You come from an arrogant family. You just do. And it flip-flops, right, from generation to generation. One's arrogant, one's insecure, because they're really just flip sides of the same coin. And you struggled with this all your life. And so you find yourself getting defensive all the time, and and you find yourself uh, always trying to do more, because what you do is never enough. And and you're always trying to, to, to make sure that everybody thinks well of you, even if it kills you, right? The heart of the gospel is that when we press into Jesus, when we trust in Him, we can look at that sin and brokenness and we can say, it stops here. Whatever it is. Anger, laziness, 
cattiness, whatever it is that's in your life, the heart of the gospel is that you can look it in the eye and say, in light of Jesus Christ, it stops there. Doesn't mean that it happens overnight. It doesn't mean that it gets completely turned around. But you can start to slow it down at least. You can start to slow it down. I'm painfully aware of the fact that, that, there, that I'm not going to be perfect in this life, that I'm still going to pass sin on to my children. But, but my prayer is that maybe it won't be as extreme. Maybe I will have been able to stop it, but it won't have been me stopping. It won't have been me slowing it down. It will have been the spirit of Jesus working in me, slowing it down, and maybe in the next generation it gets slowed down a little bit more, but with that ultimate hope that in the name of Jesus it will stop. No matter what you are facing, no matter what your family is going through, I would encourage you, first of all, to face it. You've got to face it. You've got to face it. It doesn't matter how much you go to church and how much you read your Bible. It doesn't matter how many times you do this. If you don't open up and uncover what's actually going on and is rooted in your past, You're never going to experience transformation. But if you do, if you're willing to be that vulnerable, which requires trust, if you're willing to be that vulnerable and open yourself up to God, the very hope of the gospel is that you can begin to say, in light of the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, it stops here. Let's pray. Oh, dear God, we praise you for the truth that emerges from these pages. It is a wonderfully glorious truth, but it is a painful truth as well. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to face the brokenness in our lives. God, that we might in humility lay it before you. And that because of the grace that we see surfacing through, sometimes very subtly, sometimes very boldly and gloriously in the pages of Scripture, God, I pray that 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 grace would begin to set us free. A grace that finds its power in the cross. A grace that died for us. A grace that said, you may have sinned, you may have murdered, you deserve death, but I will die for you. I forgive you. And that forgiveness can bring freedom if you will rest in it. We pray this in Jesus' name.